Have you, have you ever had a, you ever asked a question that was never really answered? Uh, the first class I ever took in a seminary at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School uh, was a systematic theology class, systematic theology one, which was God and Scripture. That was pretty important, right? But the primary reading for this class was, of course, the book that our professor had written the year before. Right? That's what professors do. <laughs> they write something, they give you their book. So it was a good book, though. I, I admit I was a little disappointed because my wife and I house sat for this guy All right, the summer prior to our enrolling. And I, I did drop the hint that I was taking his class. You understand, first of all, he had two or three dozen copies of his book on his bookshelves. All right, this massive book that was like $40 or something. And I, I, I was hoping he would give me one. You know, we house that for him. I was thinking, maybe he will. And I, so I dropped the hint. Hey, I'm taking your class. And he even took out the book and, and started showing me pages in the book. And I was like, this is it. And no dice. No dice. I didn't get it. You know, in retrospect, I should have had him autograph the book. That would have just sealed the deal, right? Oh, well. Lesson learned. Anyway, a good friend of mine and I was taking this class with me. He, he lived right across the way where we lived on campus. And uh, we were kind of getting excited about the class. And specifically, we were looking over the, the course syllabus. And we were especially geeked about one question that was going to be addressed. And that was this. How is it that some books of the Bible... Some books are deemed inspired by God and authoritative for life, and others are not. And you know, even worse than not having a question really answered is when an authority of that question poses the actual question, they don't answer it, and that's, that's sort of what happened. All right, I can't be too critical because I know that you've probably asked me a question before and I sounded like a politician, and I didn't really answer it and just talked about what I wanted to. And I'm sure I'll do that again. So, but in this case, when he asked this question, what he did was just give us Scripture. He didn't give us any history, uh, no referring to sources outside of the Bible. He just gave us quotations from books of the Bible that were calling themselves authoritative. Does that make sense? So... Um, now, of course, what Scripture says about itself is very important, but it was left right there so to say clearly the way Scripture talks about itself is proof enough. Now, of course, the problem with that, that's a little bit like uh, if you're in a courtroom, the defense asking its client to prove its innocence by showing his journal entries from the days the crime was committed. Right? Now, that's a great starting place, but he's a little biased. My buddy and I felt gypped, and I determined to look into and grapple with this question for myself. Why some books and not others? And I found, just in the last uh, two and a half years being here, a number of you have asked at different points, like, why are some books included in the Bible, why are not? And I have friends who are asking this question. So the result of all of this is what I bring to you today and next week. This morning we're going to be in the first of a two-week journey in discovering how the Bible was built. By looking at the Bible's production, 
its distribution, and its quality management. And then next week we're going to look at criteria for including certain books, and we'll also look at the reject books. All right, but first, why should this matter to you? I want to give you four compelling reasons on why this question of why, why these books should matter to you. Because, you know, four is a lot, I realize that, but I'm asking you to basically go all, all in on this. It's, a, it's kind of an academic history kind of uh, subject we'll be looking at next two weeks. And I'm asking you to really follow along, and so I'm gonna, I need to give you some good reasons, I think, to really seek your teeth into this subject. Uh, first reason why this should matter is you can gain confidence that the Bible you hold contains the final authoritative words of God. Because someone will run a story about a fragment of some text or you know, archaeological uh, piece that's found, and it's claimed to be written by a Peter or a Paul or a John. It doesn't have to be some like scholarly journal that no one's ever heard of or doesn't have to run on NPR, PBS, or BBC or something like that. I actually first awoke to this reality by seeing it on MTV News that was reporting this. Some of you like, that's an oxymoron, MTV News, but oh well, it was there. It did exist. But they were reporting that this fragment was found. It could be part of the Bible. And people all of a sudden say, oh, wow, maybe the Bible that I grew up reading isn't the Bible. Second reason this should matter to you, your neighbor might be asking this question, even if you are not. And Jesus, of course, calls us to love our neighbor. This is one of the ways you can love them. If, If your neighbor read the book, The Da Vinci Code, which sold 80 million copies, 80 million copies, or watched the movie, which I'm guessing more people watch the movie just on human beings' propensity when faced with the choice of reading a book or watching a movie. You choose the latter. So, I mean, that's probably like over 100 million people. And if they watched or read The Da Vinci Code, they would have at least asked this question. This is a major question of the plot. Why these books? And what many people conclude either through rumor or hearsay or even through actual research, is that choosing what was included in the Bible was totally arbitrary. Or worse, it was conspiracy for those in power to actually hold on to power, to keep power by choosing the books they wanted and keeping those books in the Bible. Another reason this should matter to you is to answer heresy and half-truths do so confidently. Some people will say, you know, hey, how do we really know that Jesus is God? Well, starting place is the Bible where Jesus said and makes claims that he is God. And it's a starting place if it is truly reliable. If you can be confident that what it says in there, and they can be confident that what this says has some validity to it. A lot of times people won't come out with heresy but little half truths you know a lot of people think the bible says things like god helps those who helps them help themselves right or jesus jesus is accepting of everybody people have that idea neither of which are actually in the bible or true and this is the chief reason actually these heresies these half truths are the chief reason why 
the early church fathers started to think in terms of putting together a list of books in the mid to late second century. More on that in a moment. A, a fourth reason, the reliability of Scripture is the key linchpin of apologetics and a defense of the Christian faith. There are all kinds of questions, legitimate questions people have about God and spirituality and faith. People have questions about creation versus evolution and the problem of evil and suffering in the world if there's a good and all-powerful God. The, the question of the existence of miracles and evidence for a resurrection of people. All of these become easier to address. All of these key questions, important questions, become easier to address if a person becomes convinced of the plausibility of the Bible, the reliability of the Bible. Because the Bible starts to get to these questions. If you can answer that, I think it's key. You can begin there. So let's get to this. First, the production of the Bible. All right, how does authorship work? Another way to ask this is, how was it that God wrote using a man's pen? All right, so we know people wrote this thing, but how did God use a bick, right? Well, the Bible addresses this, actually. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. You want to read this with me? Peter says this, We have something more sure, the prophetic word, the word of God, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. A few things here. First of all, specifically, speaking of the Old Testament prophets, uh, now, as we'll see next week, though, the apostles of the New Testament, you know, these 12 apostles and, and, and Paul, carried on the function of Old Testament prophets. All right, they did what prophets in the Old Testament used to do. All right, but two additional points, which, is, which are interesting here and important to note. One, it wasn't what they thought they saw and heard. Right? Or an interpretation of what they for sure heard and for sure saw in Jesus and in the works that the Spirit did. But it's what God communicated about those things. But how did that work? How did that work if they were the ones writing it down? The key is to think sailboat. All right, think about a sailboat, sailing. Anyone, anyone a nautical person? You enjoy sailing out there? Raise your hand. Two people, three people cautiously raise their hand. I assume that means not to go sailing with you because it would be dangerous. But uh, all right, so thanks sailboat because carried along, this word carried along, that the writers were carried along by the Spirit is a word, Greek word pharaoh, which is a nautical term, a very purposeful use of words to create this image here that is an image of the wind that would move the boat along through the sails. It would carry the boat along. The idea then, as it applies to Scripture, is, is not that the Holy Spirit is channeling himself through the author as some, like some type of helpless medium. You know, like, 
God says this now. It's not like that. Some kind of weird spiritual incantation. But instead, the author's personality, uh, his background, his vocabulary, his writing style, all come through in what he writes. What happens is the Holy Spirit starts to move, if you will, and blow the author in a new direction, as in a sailboat. But there still has to be someone manning the helm. And that's sort of how it works. It's that combination, moving, moving in new directions, but someone's got to steer. There's that combination of how we should think about the Bible being written. So what happens next? So we got production. What happens next? The letter was then distributed after it was written. It was distributed to its intended audience. But it didn't stop there. Colossians 4.16, actually, uh, this, this letter in the New Testament, Colossians 4.16, provides incredible insight into what happens next. Colossians 4.16, Paul says this, sort of as an aside, but an important aside at the end of this letter. And when this letter, this letter to the church of Colossae, has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from them. All right, so basically they're saying, take that letter and ship it off so other churches can read it. Now, letters were passed on and further distributed, and much of the time, and we know this from extant sources, outside the Bible, one church would loan another church the letter, then that church would copy it and hand back the original letter to the, to the first church. So it's pretty cool. So what, what would happen is, as churches copied letters and sent them back and copied them and sent them back, these centers of writing and collection of letters would form, almost like major libraries and cities. And begin to form. You have these collections of, of letters. An important side note here on this verse. Uh, this verse also shows that the letter, each letter was not only intended for one audience. Right? It was not only culturally and place specific, but it was universally applicable as well. Paul specifically addresses, for instance, in the book of Colossians, false teaching, and stuff like that, infecting the church in Colossae. But it can also benefit an entirely different church, an entirely different setting, entirely different city, about half a day's journey away. And that's important because when people read the Bible and read specific parts of the Bible, it's not enough to say, well, you know, Paul was dealing with, with a particular people and a particular situation at a particular time, so this doesn't apply to my life. No, those letters, even then, were read in other places, in other contexts. Important side note, if you ever read the Bible and say that. So what happened was scriptures distributed, but over time, people who loved scripture, who wanted to conform their life to it, who saw it as authoritative over their lives, they felt the need to start to safeguard it. And we're going to see why as we get into quality management. The last part of the talk this morning, quality management, the history of canonization. What is a canon? 
right? What is a cannon? I mean, are, are they, you know, just things people use in the Civil War and on pirate ships? No, they're spelled differently. Uh, one less N, C-A-N-O-N, this cannon we're going to talk about this morning. Cannon is a Greek word meaning a bar or measuring rod. All right, so a cannon was a rule, a standard, even a list. And it came to mean, cannon came to mean a standard, a standard body of literature, in this case the Bible, against which everything else is judged. Okay, so if other people wrote letters and wrote books, the Bible became the standard against which those things would be judged. How true are they? Well, what does the Bible say? And not just other writings, but also our actions, our motives, our our beliefs. We're called to be judged against this standard, the Bible. All right, one helpful way to think of that is sort of how like all crazy people are measured against Charlie Sheen. All right, that's a good way to think about it. Like if if you know someone who's crazy, everyone measures against Charlie Sheen. I don't know. Anyone, not not enough Charlie Sheen fans out there? Kim Jong-il? I don't know. Should I keep going? I'll get myself in trouble eventually. All right. (laughs) Sorry. But that's kind of a way to think about it. All these things measured against this thing called a canon. And we need to understand that canonization was a history. The process of putting this whole canon together was a history, not a moment, but a process. As churches used various texts and noted the authority of God in them, some were kept, some passed on, others discarded. It's not like one day people just brought all the potential candidates together and said, hey guys, come on in, and without any knowledge to their past history, either gave them the approved or denied stamp. But some people think and even claim that's how the Bible came together. People like Dan Brown of the Da Vinci Code and others. I want to give you two quotes by two of the most respected New Testament scholars. And I, want, I say New Testament because for the sake of time this morning uh, and next week, we're just going to talk primarily about the 27 books of the New Testament. Um, most people have issues with the New Testament anyway, and Old Testament's kind of more set in stone, so we're going to talk primarily about the New Testament. F.F. Bruce, who wrote a classic book called The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? Which, by the way, you can always check out and mooch off the pastor's library in the back. Little plug there. He said this, The New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in a canonical list, in the list of the canon, on the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired. Church councils did not impose something new upon the Christian communities, but codified or codified what was already the general practice of those communities. Doesn't it cool? The church communities understood this is God's word. And, and as he superintended the process, communities from all different places began to acknowledge, yes, this is God's word. And it all came together. Bruce Metzger, who's regarded as one of the top four or five authorities in New Testament Greek, he says this, you have to understand that the canon was not the result of a series of contests involving church politics. You see, the canon is an authoritative, oh, I'm sorry, is a list of authoritative books 
more than it is an authoritative list of books. Let me say that again because it's not just wordplay. The canon is a list of authoritative books more than it is an authoritative list of books. In other words, the authority is in the books, not in the list. These documents didn't derive their authority from being selected. Each one was authoritative before anyone gathered them together. It was a process because these books were authoritative and then brought together. So let's talk more about that process. It began, the historical process began with the apostles themselves. After the time Jesus rose from the dead and people started to trust their life to Jesus, the apostles themselves started to talk about what was authoritative for life and what was not. Let's take a look at 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. Read this with me if you would. Once again, the apostle Peter says this. And count the patient, patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does this in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, matters of salvation. There are some things in his letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. First of all, I think it's so cool that this is in the Bible. I love that Peter essentially comes alongside and says, you know what, I've read Paul also, and that dude's deep. I know it's hard to understand. Isn't that cool? That's in the Bible. But, he go, but what's key here, this word translated scriptures, all right, these scriptures is a, is a Greek word, graphe. It occurs 51 times in the New Testament. And each time, in every single case, it refers to the Old Testament. These scriptures, this graphe, is first to the Old Testament. So it's a technical term used by the New Testament writers to show that these are God's words in the Old Testament. They are canon-worthy. And here, an apostle is adding Paul's writings to that category. He's saying, divinely inspired like the Old Testament. And so we begin to see already an apostle saying, this guy's letters are inspired by God and authoritative for life. So it begins here. And then, and then what we see is we, we know that these letters, such as the letters of Paul, were, were copied and passed back and forth. Others discarded. And the process went on for some time, being distributed throughout the known world. And the earliest attempt to make a list of which books should be included in the Bible wasn't until 140. A.D. by a dude named Markian. Now, wait a minute, I should, let me backtrack for a minute. Earlier than that, the church fathers had made comments that are preserved in things like these codexes and parchments. For example, a guy named Ignatius, around 110 A.D., said in his letter to the Romans this, I do not order you as Peter and Paul. They were apostles. See what he's saying there? They have a right to order you because their words were divinely inspired, authoritative for life. He says, I'm a convict. They were free. I am even now a slave. So we have these comments, again, throughout history that these guys were authoritative. It's not until Markian comes on the scene that a list is attempted. Unfortunately, Markian turns out to be a heretic. 
So he gives it a good shot, but he distinguishes between an inferior creator God of the Old Testament and the Father God revealed in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And they're different gods. All right, Uh, it's essentially something called Gnosticism. It's not true. The Bible, the New Testament shows it's not true. Uh, So because the Old Testament, that God's inferior, what do you think happens? He presents a list of books that reflect that. Most of the Gospels, which have a lot of Old Testament quotations to them, get the Acts, all right, uh, and some of the letters of Paul. So we're, he ends up writing a list, the Gospel of Luke and 10 of Paul's letters. He says, that's your New Testament. But, of course, he was a heretic, so that was a problem. But it's a first attempt. Now, I want to stop here for a minute. Why did it take so long? If this was so important, why did it take so long for someone to get a list down of the books that should be included in the Bible, except and inspired by God? First of all, there was no need. Until a heretic, you know, a heretic came along and made a list, there was no need to respond. And so when marking comes along, you're going to start seeing lists come about. Also, we have the living testimonies of apostles who are still alive. For example, the Apostle John we know it was alive until at least the end of the first century A.D. So you had these people who wrote these books, some of them still living. But even when those apostles who wrote the New Testament were gone, you know, to be with the Lord, which they were, uh, some of the early church fathers of like the mid-second century, they knew these guys. They knew people who wrote the Bible, which first of all, it's pretty cool. Right, but they knew them, like they grew up with them, they talked with them. You know, so that's important because you could say things like, yeah, you know, I know the Apostle John. Like, I did progressive dinners with him. (laughs) And Arrhenius and his wife, like, we did stuff together. Played bridge. So they knew these people. So why would you need to make this list when you know the people who wrote the Bible? So they knew it was authoritative because they knew the Apostle who wrote it. There was no need. Here's the other, another reason. These people in the New Testament, it's not like they could anticipate the explosion, the future explosion of Christianity. I mean, people were dying all around them for their faith. Jesus said, man, this, this door is going to be pretty narrow. People were dying. I mean, they were just trying to hold on. They weren't anticipating, like, we've got to get a list down for the billions of people who are going to trust Jesus. In fact, they were just trying to understand and get ready for Jesus coming again. Jesus said he was going to come again. They were trying to understand this and get ready for it. When you're getting ready for God to come again, you're not worried about like writing lists down. You're just trying to follow him and his words. So it makes sense. At this point, that's not their main concern. But once Markian blows the lid off all this and says, here's the list and it's wrong, got to take some action. So, in A.D. 170, we start to see development of some of this list come about. An Assyrian Christian named Tatian puts the four Gospels together in a continuous narrative called the Harmony of the Gospels. All right, so that's kind of nice, convenient. You can read the Gospels all in one nice story setting. He does this for us. 180 A.D., a guy named Irenaeus essentially writes of how the fourfold Gospels became so accepted and paramount, like, and spread that their legitimacy was like an afterthought. Their legitimacy was an afterthought. 
Everyone thought, yeah, these are the Gospels. Everyone knows that. Then soon after, in the late 2nd century, we get a very important discovery, what's called the Muratorian Fragment. Known by archaeologists and confirmed by historians. This was written by a guy named Hippolytus of Rome. And he cites most of the New Testament books, speaks explicitly of two testaments and the fourfold gospel. You see how it's progressing, right? We're getting a little bit more, a little bit more. He gives an account of the origin and the scope of New Testament writings. You get the four gospels, you get Acts, you get Paul's uh, nine letters to the churches, Philemon, First and Second Timothy, Jude, two of the three epistles from John included in this. Oh, you also get the Apocalypse of John, i.e. Revelation, and the Apocalypse of Peter. Where is that, you ask? Not in the Bible. There were still some kinks that were being worked out. Again, it was a process. He actually mentions in this fragment uh, how one book called The Shepherd of Hermas is helpful reading, but not from the Bible, shouldn't be authoritative for life. Unfit, he says, for public worship. And again, this is important because you start to see the process of distinguishing between what's in the Bible and authoritative for life and what's not. Right? What's, what's Max Lucado and what's the Bible? Right? What's Tim Keller and what's the Bible? All, you know, people we like who are good, but not the Bible. Then we get into the early 3rd century. We creep along. Guys like Tertullian, Clement, Origen, Eusebius are all sort of be in agreement and make bigger stands on this. Eusebius distinguished between acknowledged books, disputed books, and what he called spurious books. I'll explain this. Disputed books, he says, hey, we're still, we got, we got to get together and talk about Hebrews, uh, James, Jude, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John. Um, spurious books, which meant books that are good, but they'll pass away, unlike God's word. Uh, the Apocalypse of Peter is included on that. The didache, which is just another word for basically teaching. Um, the epistle of, of Barnabas. And finally, the gospel according to Hebrews. These are good books. You know, not bad. Good books, but they're going to pass away. These are eternal words of God. Finally, um, you had like other books. Eusebius didn't even have a category for books like the gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Matthias, the Acts of Andrew, the Acts of John. He said of these kinds of books, those ought to be reckoned not even among the spurious books, but shunned altogether as wicked and impious. That's his way of saying those books are a pile of rubbish, right? So, we see this process that's happening. There's a history here. By the early... 300s, all New Testament books that we have today were being used in mainstream church bodies. Athanasius, the Bishop of Alexandria, was the first to list all 27 canonical New Testament books in his Easter, level, uh, Easter letter, 367 A.D. All right, by the way, if you want to know any of this stuff later, because there's a lot of dates and facts and history, I'll put this up on our, uh, with my sermon on the media player. All 27 books are officially ratified by the church councils of Hippo in 393 A.D. and then the Council of Carthage in 397 A.D. 
And by the way, I, I hesitate to use the word ratified, again, because the process of canonization is as important, which is really more of a recognition than a selection. A recognition of what was authoritative for life than a selection of books. A recognition of what was clearly inspired by God. In addition, around this time, into the 4th century, we have the highly influential church fathers, Jerome and Augustine, who published their list of 27 books comprising the New Testament. The same 27 we have today. So that's the history right there. I know there's a lot of facts and figures, very unusual for a sermon. But it's important that I just want you to see that you have record of an actual process. This wasn't something where people just said, we think this should be in the Bible, let's do it. But as God's word began to be read and copied and passed along, people noted, this is from God. This glorifies Jesus. This This is consonant and consistent with everything we've heard about how to follow him. And we'll see more of that next week. Let me read this to you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. A friend of mine in, in university read these words with me. And when asked what he thought, he paused and he sort of pensively replied, you know, couldn't these words still be true? If Jesus, nev- if Jesus never really uttered them, if he never really uttered them, couldn't they still be true? And couldn't the spirit of what he was saying, the, the need for light to overcome darkness, uh, bearing witness to that light, for people to become children of God, and the other things he says like, loving your enemies and judge not lest ye be judged, can't those things be true without Jesus historically being the one to say them? Can't we still follow that ethic? And he had a point. You'll still hear that today. Can't we just follow the teachings of Jesus without Jesus being the one to teach them? It's a fair question. If you're in your yoga class, would the need to empty your mind be more or less true if it was not first uttered by the historical person, Siddhartha, and what later became Buddhism? Like, would that be more or less true that I need to empty my mind? But what, Siddhartha, he didn't really say it. I don't need to. Or now I need to. Or if you're reminding someone, let's say, uh, nothing is certain in life except death and taxes. You heard that saying? Kind of partially applies here in Cayman. That's another story. But nothing is certain in this world, I'm not doing a sermon on that, uh, except death and taxes. Right? Would it be any less true if... The historical person of Benjamin Franklin uttered it or not? 
No, I mean, it's still true. The problem is, what sets Christianity apart from every other major religion, philosophy, life ethic, is entirely based on a historical person. After all, what amazes us more, if you read these scriptures, what, what kind of stands out to you more than the word God became flesh and dwelt among us? God became a man. That Jesus did live historically on this earth at a specific date and time is essential. Light overcomes darkness because Jesus historically lived, died, and rose from the dead. It's based on that. We become God's children only because Jesus lived died on a cross and rose from the dead to make us children of God. Right? Siddhartha Buddha doesn't help empty your mind, nor does Ben Franklin send you daily emails to remind you, hey, life's uncertain. Jesus overcomes darkness and brings people into God's family. Judge not, lest ye be judged, can only be done because Jesus historically died with the judgment of the world upon him. He gives us the power to not judge others and leave it up to him. Love your enemies, while a great ethic can only be lived out because Jesus historically died to save his enemies like you and I. To rescue us and give us the power then to love those who are still his enemy and ours. You see that? It all depends on history. So the early church copied manuscripts, distributed them widely, preached them faithfully, prayerfully labored from one generation to the next to write down a list, the right list, so that we could have an accurate, reliable account of the person of Jesus. Everything you hear about, know about, sing about, pray about in some cases, about Jesus is found in the Bible. And if you can't trust that it's the right Bible, then we can't trust we got the right Jesus. But thankfully, we can. Let's pray. Lord, I'm reminded this morning that for a number of us here who have already made the commitment to trust Christ and praise you for that, Lord, that we just take this by faith and help us remember that there are many around us who ask the question, you know, I, I've heard that the Bible, that there were parts of the Bible that weren't included. What's up with that? There are people who have these kinds of questions. And I pray that we would at least maybe, hey, you know, let's, let's talk about that. I know of a resource that can help with that. Help you see that Actually, this Bible is reliable, and we can look to it to answer some of your deepest questions. I pray that we would do that. I pray for those of us who maybe kind of believe in Jesus, but we're, we, we admittedly, we have questions, or we just want our faith to be strengthened, that you would strengthen our faith this morning, to know that there were faithful men and women who were sensitive to your spirit and allowed your spirit to superintend a process of putting together this Bible. Maybe there's some of those here who are doubting. Father, I pray that 
for those who maybe haven't yet trusted Christ, and we're so glad they're with us this morning, that they would see that this wasn't a crazy process. It wasn't a bunch of loony people who were, you know, just off their rocker. who just said, yep, we'll take this. We'll stamp this to be approved. But it was a reasonable but divinely inspired process to bring together this amazing book we call the Bible. Help us have confidence in it so we can have confidence in our great rescuer, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.